having already encouraged his readers to set their mind on things above, Paul then tries to expound on what it means to make a break from the former way of living. Verse 9, do not lie to one another since you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, that is Christ, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And so, as those who have been chosen by God, chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in deed, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, that they may not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at that same time for us as well, that God may open up for us a door for the word so that we may be able to speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, in order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity, and let your speech Always be with grace, seasoned, as it were, with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Let's pray. Our Father, we know that there are many, many issues pertaining to this text of Scripture. I pray that you would take your word and Lord by your Holy Spirit apply it to our hearts as as you see fit as we have need that we might Lord be instructed by your word that we might be encouraged because of the gospel but also challenged and made aware of how much we desperately need your help we thank you that you are God who is our help you're the God who speaks truth into our life so that we might not walk in darkness but that we might indeed see the wondrous 
goodness of your ways and that we might find help and rescue for our, our tendency, Lord, to stumble and to act foolishly. And so we ask, Lord, that you would use this time for your redemptive purposes, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of the rich blessings that we receive and are able to take part of even today is just the hearing of divinely inspired apostolic instruction given to early believers. The same instruction that they received is the same instruction we need and have received even this morning. And much of this instruction that we find in the New Testament particularly is instruction given to defend the gospel. The gospel was under attack again and again by false teaching and those who wrote, the apostles wrote it to expound on the implications of the gospel if it's truly understood on how it, how it has effect upon our everyday life. And one example, of course, is found in this passage of Paul's epistle to the Colossians. We read in verse 2 of chapter 1 of Colossians that it was written to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who were at this city called Colossae. And the letter of Colossians is written to counter a number of heresies that were swirling around and beginning to infiltrate this church in Colossae. Things like mysticism and the Jewish legalism that was trying to rob the gospel of its wonderful uh, freeing truths and the gospel of grace that we find in Jesus Christ. And so Paul, deeply concerned about the effects of this demonic teaching that was distorting the person and preeminence of Jesus Christ, he emphasized the themes of the deity of Jesus Christ, the themes of redemption, what does redemption mean and signify, and the whole theme of reconciliation, what is the significance of what Christ has done in his work of reconciliation. And so the apostle in this passage is seeking to impress upon the members of this church that Jesus Christ is to have the supremacy in every aspect of the lives of his people. If you back up to chapter 1, verses 16 and 18, Paul indicates that Jesus is the one who created everything. He is the one who preceded everything. That is, he existed before anything was put into existence. It is Jesus who holds everything together. Every atom, every molecule of this creation is held together by Jesus. And he, therefore, it's not too surprising, is to have supreme authority in everything in the church. It is Jesus who is the supreme one and the preeminent one in every sphere of life. And so Paul insisted that the gospel of Jesus Christ not only powerfully imparts life within an individual, but the gospel also imparts a new life. Look at verse, uh, verse 6, he also says, constantly bearing fruit and constantly increasing. It is the gospel that should be constantly increasing and bearing fruit in our lives as the grace of God is understood and applied in every sphere of life. I want to make it very clear this morning that the gospel is not merely concerned with eternal destinations. Sometimes that's the only way the gospel is presented. It's only talking about avoiding hell. Well, the gospel speaks to more than just the vertical dimension of life, our relationship with God. That is obviously the core of the gospel. But the gospel also includes and has 
in, in its understanding is not only does it deal with the, hor- the vertical relationship of our relationship with God, but also horizontal dimension to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has a direct bearing right here and right now on redeeming human relationships and every realm of human endeavor. So that we notice in chapter 2, verse 6, we read this. Paul says, Having received Jesus as Lord, as Master, as the one who is supreme and and, uh, has the king over your life, he says, you as his followers are to walk or to live in him. That means that my everyday life is to be lived in such a way that I am in Christ, and therefore it makes a difference with how my life is conducted. So the gospel is to have a direct impact on the different dimensions of life, including, and you'll notice it begins there in verse 18, including having a direct impact on our family life. As Paul explains the interaction not only between husbands and wives, but between children and their parents. He also goes on to expand in this chapter, in chapter 2, that the gospel is to have an impact, direct impact, upon our church life. That the fact that the people of God are to be having an impact of the gospel and how they deal with life right now, uniting diverse people together, people who have been joined to Christ by faith. And you'll notice thirdly in this passage in Colossians, Paul's already talked about that the gospel of, our, of Jesus Christ is to have an impact on our life in the world. Life lived before people who are not believers. And he talks specifically about, in that context, and applying it in a very specific way, to the issue of the work world, our place of employment. And in his culture, it was slaves and masters. In our society, it is our employer and employee relationships. And there are many other ways in which the gospel, of course, is shown and and demonstrates itself in our world, which we're going to just focus on the one he points out here. But Jesus summarized the impact of the gospel on his Sermon on the Mount, in which he taught his disciples that they are to let their light so shine that other people will see that light and see their good works in such a, a way in which they live their life that those people in turn will glorify God who's in heaven. And so, therefore, the vision of our church, as found on the back of your sermon notes, I'm going to go back again and try to explain why we're going through these things again today, is to look at the vision statement for our church that we as elders, and uh, with the involvement of the deacons as well, we've agreed this is the vision we have for our church. If you've got it there in front of you, would you join me and we read it together? Our vision is to see God's glory reflected in the lives of transformed disciples of Christ who live out gospel truths in everyday life in our homes, our church, and the world. So now you have my outline. Our homes, our church, and our world. Living out the gospel. So the first area I want to focus on this morning is to think through this implication from the text here in Colossians 3. How is the gospel lived out in our families? Well, first of all, it has to be applied to dealing with marital relationships. Many people in our society today, in a very, very uh, confused way of looking at the issue of marriage, there's so much confusion, so much uh, that is uh, assumed, and, and so many views of what marriage means and what marriage has been reinvented to mean, 
But notice here that many people in our society would say that marriage primarily is a means for personal fulfillment. It's a way in which I find that my needs are met and I find that whatever is gratifying to me is met within the context of marriage. Or other people may come into marriage and they say, well, it's primarily a means of propagating a family legacy. The whole idea is to pass down what's been passed down to you and to pass it down to somebody else. And so you do that through the context of marriage. And I would suggest to you that the gospel redeems the marriage relationship in that it says and works in such a way that marriage now can be a gospel-exhibiting community is built in the context of marriage. Most of us don't think of marriage in that way, but that's really one of the things that God seeks to do in the context of marriage. Now, I want to just speak for a moment here in a parenthetical way. I realize that not all of us are married here. And I want us to just speak also to the what's not spoken of here in the text specifically, but in generally in Scripture, that singleness also, I would suggest to you, is redeemed by the gospel as well. That is, the gospel speaks to those who are not married in that it says they too can be joined in this wonderful work of God in the hearts of people so that they might pursue the same pursuit of building Christian community in ways that is, is glorifying to God and that in many ways baffles the world around us. Some aspects of single life are in, actually enhanced in this regard. That is, there are some senses in which a single person can have certain aspects of kingdom living. It's in a sense easier for them to do that uh, and certain aspects of marriage life, of course, can be enhanced. Other aspects of kingdom living, both have their advantages, both have some disadvantages. But both have unique challenges and liabilities. In both states, whether we're single or whether we're married, followers of Jesus Christ can model kingdom community life that demonstrates to the world the glory of God. Now that's a big statement. Obviously, we fall short of that on some levels uh, at times and oftentimes. But that does not deny the fact that the power of the gospel is seeking to do that in our midst. And I would suggest to you that Christian marriage is a signpost. It's a billboard, as it were, advertising Christ. Advertising Jesus Christ and his covenantal love for his bride, the church. And no marriage will ever meet a spouse's ultimate need for love and companionship. And that's why, of course, only a deep relationship with Christ is going to be able to do that. We are constantly going to find that the person to whom, if you are married, that person will never ultimately fulfill the deepest longings of your heart. You will always be disappointed with that dream person that looked so wonderful when you were looking toward marriage you will find them to be an ongoing science, a source of disappointment. They will never meet your deepest longings and needs. I don't know how many days of marriage it takes you to figure that out. Some people much sooner than others. But that is a reality. That shouldn't surprise us. Because no person will ever do that. Even if you're a single person, you will never find the church, you will never find community in ways in which you long for it. You will never find your deepest needs met in another person. Only Christ is able to do that. And he does so in the gospel. And so I say to you, if you are single, we are, we are affirming here this morning, you are not an inferior person. 
you're not an incomplete person. But I would suggest to you that those who are single in Christ, they are highly valued members of the body of Christ. And they are people who are gifted, just as those who, have, who are in marriage, they also are gifted, both are gifted by God with the grace of the gospel to pursue kingdom ministry. But those who are single can do so unencumbered. That is, without all the tremendous challenges of trying to keep up with children and all of the associated needs and challenges of that, plus the challenges of trying to relate to somebody in marriage and all the things that come with that. They can pursue kingdom ministry unencumbered. There are some advantages to that. Paul was not moaning about the fact that he was single. He actually said, I wished you were like I am. He was freed up to do tremendous things for the kingdom. But those of us who are married, I would suggest the gospel is to shape our view of marriage so that we understand again, we must fight against the culture that continually suggests to us that the purpose of marriage is personal fulfillment. It is not the purpose of a Christian marriage. The purpose of a Christian marriage, I would suggest to you, needs to be expanded to also include the fact that God desires to work marriage use marriage as a means of personal sanctification. You say, oh, brother, that's why I'm married. Personal sanctification? Yes, in a wonderful way. One of the best contexts to learn about your own sin and your need for redemption is in the union of marriage. Why? Because you cannot hide your sin as well as you do when you were a single life. It's true. I'll never forget when I was first married, I realized, wow, I am very impatient when it comes with somebody who seems so hard to understand what they're trying to say to me, and I seem to be unable to understand what in the world they want me to do. I began to realize, as I think you will realize, that selfishness, becomes exposed so often and so clearly in the context of living with someone in close confines on a regular basis. Now, I say that to say this. Marriage is a great revealer of hearts. Because in the context of marriage, your heart is going to be exposed often and regularly. And, and, we, and so saying that, I say this. The gospel is the only effective remedy for the inevitable struggle with sinful selfishness and self-centeredness. It is the gospel that gives hope to people like us who find ourselves saying, wow, I really am all about me. And the gospel calls husbands in particular, as Paul says here, to love their wives along with the same lines of the fact that they already are loving. We are all automatically loving. Every husband loves what? He loves himself. It's just automatic. It doesn't take anything to love yourself and say, I want to sit down, have the remote in my hand, and have something good to eat or drink, and just get lost on television or some video game and not be bothered. Or make sure I have the food I want to eat, or make sure I get the clothes I want, or make sure I have the gadget that works in my hand. I want to get what I want to get because why? Because we love ourselves. We have no problem taking care of ourselves. So the gospel says, okay, you take that love for yourself, and you apply that now to loving the one that God gives you in the context of marriage. To the same degree you love yourself, now love your wife. You find him out immediately, what? I can't do that. I fail. So we need help. We're desperate for a Savior. And that's the good context in which the gospel drives us to Christ. 
Not only that, but Paul says it's not enough just to love your wife like you already love yourself, but you need to love your wife to the same degree that Christ loved his church, his bride, for whom he laid down his life. If you know anything about that kind of standard, you know this, you, you know the one thing. Learning from Christ, husbands are called to die to self, to make sure that the needs of their wives are met. And what we know, of course, about that is the gospel calls every husband then to be continually in the process of confessing sin, continually in the process of repenting of sin, of selfishness, of neglect, of self-focus, and to be continually in the awareness of the outward effects of a heart that has become hardened, a heart that has become selfish and self-focused, a heart that has become caught up by some idol in our hearts that says that this is more important than it is to love Christ and more important is to love the one that Christ has given us, our spouse. And so Paul warns in this text, in verse 19, he says, listen, husbands, be careful that you might have a bitterness. Your heart might become embittered against your spouse. What's he saying there? He's saying you've got to watch how you deal with anger and frustration in living in the context of marriage. I can remember in my own life how this has been exposed numerous times in ugly ways I don't ever, I'm not... Uh, proud about it all. I, it's very difficult to admit these things, but it's true. I realized early on in our marriage that whenever I got frustrated at life in general, maybe, but also in just the challenges of life in the context of marriage, my tendency would be to withdraw into myself. And so I become a person who would not talk. I would sort of clam up, have nothing to say. I don't go around shouting. I don't go around screaming. I don't throw things and break things. I was frustrated, and the frustration was, I just don't want to deal with things and deal with life, and so I'm just going to be quiet, which means leave me alone, and let's just be, be at peace. But that quietness, that withdrawnness is all about me. It's all about not handling my anger, my embitterness in a healthy and appropriate ways. It means at that point, my wife is neglecting, I'm neglecting her, I'm not engaging with her, I am basically saying, talk to my hand. I don't want anything to do with you right now. Now, I never thought of that when it was going on at the moment. And if it happens three weeks from now, when we're on sabbatical together, I'll be reminded again of how uh, the tendency is, you don't see it when it's happening, but we need to be careful through the gospel not to have hearts that become embittered. Why? Because when we do so, we're sort of losing sight of how the Lord doesn't do that to us. He doesn't become embittered against us. The Lord does not say, okay, I'm going to treat you with the silent treatment for a while, or I'm going to yell at you, or I'm going to give you a lot of sarcasm in how I deal with you. No, the Lord gently and lovingly continues to speak into our lives and to show us grace and mercy in Christ. So there are much, of course, things we could amplify here and uh, and continue to explore, but obviously the gospel needs to reveal our hearts as husbands. If you are not in a regular pattern of doing that, ask your wife to give you some help. I'm sure she'll be glad to point out some areas where confession and repentance may be appropriate. I would suggest you also, you'll notice in the text, that the wives are encouraged and called because of the gospel to learn to yield their wills to Christ to subject themselves to Christ, to surrender to his kingship over their heart and life, 
and in so doing, acknowledging that they are to submit to the headship of their husbands, imperfect husbands, husbands that don't always meet the standards of what they wish they would do. But such yielding, though, notice he says, Paul appeals to them in verse 18, he says, if you yield to your husband in a way that shows him the respect as the one who is the head of the home, in so doing, there is a dependence that you express that you acknowledge you have upon God in having grace to learn to not just be commanding your way around in, the, in, the, in relationship. And in so doing, this is fitting to the Lord. It fits in with what God is calling you to do in helping to be a helpmeet of the one God has given you. Now, I'm nowhere ever suggesting this means you should subject yourself to abuse. That is not what it means here in the text at all. But it is saying that in so doing, to yield yourself, you are saying, I am not the one who's seeking to be king or the commander of this relationship. I'm seeking to let my husband assume the role that God has given him, and I want to support him in that regard. So I will show him respect and yield to his leadership. And when he's not providing leadership, I will pray for him. I will wait for him. And I will seek to offer suggestions to him in appropriate ways. Many things we could say about that, but obviously there are things I want to continue on here. But these are the kind of things that are need to be meditated on further as we think through the gospel in our married life. But notice he also continues to say the gospel has an impact upon parent-child relationships. Now we're covering a pretty much a larger sphere of us this morning. Parent-child relationships. Clearly there's a need to see the gospel transform this kind of relationship parents and their children. Rather than striving to control the outward behavior of our children, the gospel compels Christian parents to be concerned with our kids' heart issues. Because we know the biblical truth is that out of the heart flows the issues of life. That whatever the child is doing, whatever the child is saying, is the overflow of what's really in the heart of the child. So in view of the gospel, Christian parents are actually in a role assigned to them by God in which they are agents of Christ, and they are on a rescue mission. Because, according to Proverbs 22.15, foolishness, Proverbs 22.15, foolishness is bound up in the hearts of every one of your children. That does not mean that you impart it to them. That means they already have that as how they're wired when they come into your life. And the foolishness is not the fact that they're just with a low IQ or they're just uh, goofy. Foolishness means that they assume that if they get their way, that's how to be happy in life. And so the biblical truth says what? As a Christian parent, I understand that the only hope for redemptive heart change in my children is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not on being a clever parent. It's not on being a manipulative and controlling parent. It's not on a parent who's going to be perfect and have everything or, uh, put in place around my child to make it so that they don't have any problems. That will never reach the heart of your child to see heart transformation. The gospel calls parents to live under the authority of God. And therefore, not to use our children to somehow satisfy our own needs. 
needs and longings that we might have for our own sense of significance or to personal fulfillment. And so we are going to somehow live through our children. We're going to get them to do what we never could do and see that they accomplish the dreams that are really our dreams for them. We're going to sort of abandon all that and say, no, that's not what God wants me to do here. As a matter of fact, when you think about it, God never abuses his authority over us. But he always extends grace and mercy to us as sinful parents. And he reminds us of the word here from Paul in which he says in the text, verse 21, let's be careful that we don't exasperate our children. We don't want children that lose heart. There are many ways in which we can do that. There are some I suggest to you here which we need to be very much warned by the gospel to be careful of, and that is where we insist on unrealistic standards. If you set the bar so high with your children that they're constantly and they'll never ever meet that standard and all you do is point out their faults, I would suggest to you eventually you're going to exasperate them. Also with harsh punishments, demeaning words that you use, endless criticism, or teaching a standard that's this kind of standard and yet you live another standard over here. If they see the, a huge amount of hypocrisy in your life, you'll exasperate them. They'll say, man, you're, there's no reason to follow what you're saying. You don't even apply it to your own life. May I suggest to you that God never exasperates his children. Praise God. God never exasperates us as his children. As we enjoy the love and gracious guidance of Christ our shepherd, we have the privilege of being shepherding, shepherding the hearts of our children, and imparting the gospel to them. The same gospel that promises forgiveness and cleansing for the sins that we have confessed to Christ is the same gospel that encourages us, of course, to confess our sins to our children. I'll never forget that dark chapter again in my life where one of those days in which you had lots going on, lots to do, and all you kept hearing was, your children fighting each other. Not once, but continually. We've already solved this thing. We've already spoken to this issue. We've already tried to untangle a mess uh, once, twice, and now we're doing it the third time or fourth time. I can't remember how many times it was this particular day, but I remember I just got fed up, frustrated, and said, listen here, grab the arm of the one who looked like I caught him in the act of doing what he shouldn't have been doing, grabbed him, pulled him aside, and I mean I just laid into him, I spoke sternly to him, and I applied the Board of Education to him, if you will. And in so doing, realized after things calmed down that I was really frustrated of having to be interrupted by this conflagration. And after I spoke to my son, he explained to me, Dad, you don't have the full story. You don't understand this happened and this happened. And I didn't only did this because this happened. And guess what? Good old dad sinned against his own kid as the authority figure. And I will never forget, with tears in my eyes, saying to that son, Son, I am sorry. And I confess to you that I have done wrong. I was impatient. I was frustrated. And I asked God to forgive me. I asked you to forgive me. And what did I communicate to my child at that moment? I communicated, I need a gospel just as much as you do. 
And that is the standard which the gospel calls us to do. It says, I need a Savior as much as you need a Savior. And if our children don't hear that from us, then they're not hearing the gospel clearly communicated and lived out before them. Part of our purpose in being instructing our children is to not only help them see their need for a Savior to be rescuing them, but to help them understand we need the same Savior rescuing us because we have a problem with our own sin and selfishness and pride. Now, having said that, let me just say this. Oh, how God is pleased when our children are learning to obey the authority of their parents over them in the Lord, because I am convinced that when they do so for the right reasons and learn to have their hearts governed by someone other than themselves, loving authority over them in Christ, they are being trained to submit to God. And since Jesus Christ is the only one who has ever submitted and obeyed God the Father perfectly, both children and parents are reminded of the fact that what? We need find hope in knowing that the gospel extends grace and love to those of us who are rebels, to those of us who are not obedient to God as we need to be, and we're in need of ongoing forgiveness and ongoing power to have our selfish hearts changed. You can only find that in the gospel, my friend. So I hope that you will find that part of your family life that the gospel is at the core of it. The gospel is helping to provide a means of resolving some of the selfish fruit of the fruit of selfishness, the fruit of self that continually shows itself. The gospel is our cure, my friend. It is a medicine to help all of us, and we are all sick in need of grace. Well, secondly, I want us to think through the gospel being lived out in our church. It doesn't take reading too much news to realize how fragmented our world is. We live in a fragmented world of broken relationships. And the gospel creates community. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross was provided by God so that sinners might have a restored relationship with God, a holy God, on the basis of grace through faith. And the gospel calls us then, in light of the fact that God has reconciled us to himself and has restored this relationship we now have to him, he now calls us in the gospel to put to death the worldly patterns that are common in how people deal with others on the horizontal plane of life. How is that? Well, I would like to summarize that partly by what he says here in, in this passage here, beginning in uh, verses, uh, verse 5, chapter 3, verse 5. Many times we live in shame before God and we have a tendency to blame other people around us for our failings. Is that not true? That without the gospel, we have a tendency, before we were had our hearts changed by the gospel, we had a tendency to just live in shame before God and blame other people around us for our failings. In the gospel, however, chapter 3, verse 1, verse 3, we are raised up with Christ. We are given in the gospel a new identity. As we heard this morning, the idea that we are children of God. No longer are we defined by our nationality, our race, 
our socioeconomic status, our ethnic heritage, all the things that people try to quantify you, all the different boxes that you check off on your census form that define who you are based on these outward standards, these are not pertaining to who you are in the family of God. As a new society, we are renovated by the gospel so that we can share together the blessings, verse 12, chapter 3, verse 12. Here are the blessings of the, of the gospel. We are chosen we are set apart. We're deeply loved by God. That's what we share in common. This is radical stuff for Paul to talk about people who have nothing in common with each other in that society. But yet he's saying you do have lots in common. And because of the gospel, everyone is made equal in dignity, value, and significance. In, additional, in addition, the gospel imparts to us new hearts. Hearts that are daily in need of grace, grace to set aside selfishness, evil desires, which characterized our lives before we were believers. We see it in our world today, do we not? Greedy people, greedy hearts that use people for sexual satisfaction apart from commitment in the context of a covenant relationship in marriage and that they love things more than people and more than the Creator. Verse 5. So the gospel then addresses our hearts and compels us to stop wielding our words as weapons in our relationships. Instead, we're no longer to use our words as expressions of hearts that are full of embitterness and hatred. We're to, instead of hiding the truth, we're to admit our sin. Instead of using our words to destroy someone, we're to say, I want you to know that I myself have faults. I myself have done things that are not in keeping with God's standard. And therefore, in so confessing and admitting the truth of who we are, we can extend forgiveness just as the Lord has extended forgiveness to us. Verse 13. Instead of highlighting our differences, we're to celebrate our unity. Verse 14. Unity within Jesus Christ. And the gospel calls us to celebrate a Savior who does what? He shows compassion to us. He shows kindness to us. He is gentle to us. He is patient toward us. Sinners like us. That's the gospel that we embrace. That same gospel then is to empower us to respond similarly to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I would suggest to you that when we're not responding with patience, when we're not responding uh, with that kind of, of gentleness and kindness, I would suggest perhaps it's because we've lost sight of how Jesus is dealing with us in the gospel. Rather than expecting perfection and holding our fellow believers to unrealistic standards, the gospel helps us to forbear those who fail and fall short. Even as the Lord forbears us. Look at verse 13. Forbearing, bearing with one another. Realizing that people are not perfect. They don't always do the right thing. Rather than expecting perfection, we forbear. Wow, what a great insight that is. Rather than hiding behind a false facade where we give the impression that we have our act together, the gospel calls us to what? To celebrate the fact that we know the truth so well. The truth is living within us. The truth is at home in our lives in such a degree that we know that we are not together. We are not people who are right in terms of all our heart issues. And therefore, we speak to each other and we continually teach each other because we continually need to learn those truths over and over again in the context of what? Of humble worship before God who searches our hearts and knows us like the back of your hand. 
Our bonds are strengthened when we celebrate with thankful hearts a peace that only Jesus can bring about. A peace meaning justification between us and the Holy God. We are declared not guilty, but also a peace that works it out in ways in which our relationships, apart from grace, would be continually divisive and destroyed by sin. And the grace that we need from God is a grace that says, I'm going to make peace between you and other fellow sinners through the grace of Jesus Christ. May that be true of us as a church. May our church be a reflection of what God is like in our community. That they might see, oh, how wonderful is your God because I see it happening in your fellowship and family life as a church. That's how God is glorified. May I suggest to you there's one other way. It's it's a, uh, the gospel to be lived out in the world. A world in which we cry, a world in which we're in pain, a world in which, yes, the work world might make you cry. I didn't want to make light of that child in pain, but the fact is the timing is not too surprising in the sense that the gospel calls us to forsake all and to enter ourselves and use ourselves, our gifts, our abilities, and to use them in the means of applying ourselves to work, And in so doing, to provide for ourselves, to be able to give to others who are in need, yes. But it also is to understand that part of our role in this world is to not just see discipleship as a private call to a personal discipleship that's really about me and myself, but Jesus is preeminent over every area of life. Therefore, we're to apply the gospel truth to every area of life. And the Lordship of Christ has far-reaching implications, including even your work life for those of us who are employed. Look at verse 17. Chapter 3, verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now how broad is that exhortation? It's about as broad as it gets, right? Whatever you do, whatever your job is, whatever your role in life. Whatever you're doing, in word or deed, in any given week, you can do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. To the Corinthians, Paul said a similar thing, 1 Corinthians 10, 10, 31. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The all-inclusive implications of the gospel touch on every facet of life in this world. There is no such thing, hear me out now, there is no such thing as the sacred secular dichotomy. There's no such thing as saying, well, this is my life, I live for God. And this is my life, and I live it, and I I live my life over here for my employer. There's no such thing as that. Whatever you do, you do in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I would suggest to you, Abraham Kuyper, whose quote is in your bulletin there in the notes, he was a Dutch theologian, he was a prime minister of the Netherlands for a number of years, he was a scholar, but he understood he, this particular point. He was quite good at it. He was quite good at trying to help emphasize the fact that, that the breadth of the gospel implies this kind of broad view of looking at all of life under the lordship of Christ. Listen to what he said here. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence 
over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! That means whatever employer you work for, that company belongs ultimately to Jesus Christ. See, that's a radical way of looking at life. Yes, it is. That company may not be operated in such a way which they acknowledge that, but that is the ultimate truth. Every sphere of life, whether you're a homemaker, whether you're a teacher, whether it is, and he goes on to talk about this, whatever a man or woman may do, to whatever he may apply his or her hands, whether it's you're a farmer in agriculture, in commerce, in industry, in your mind, that is, you do things and create things in your mind, the world of art, in, in the realm of science, that person is, in whatsoever it may be, constantly standing before the face of God. He has strictly to obey his God, and above all, he has to aim at the glory of his God. Unquote. You see what he's saying? He's saying that whatever you do, you're doing before the face of God. Whatever your pursuits, whatever your your areas of vocation. And because every child of God was bought at a great price, we all have, everything we have and everything we do, it belongs to God. Since we've been redeemed and secured, not with large sums of money, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, Paul said to the Corinthians, you are to glorify God in your body. That is, in what you do every day. And since Jesus demonstrated the highest degree of selfless love by dying for us, we are to live no longer for ourselves. We are to live for the person who died for us and who rose again on our behalf. And so when you get up early tomorrow morning and the alarm has wakened you up, awakened you, and you head into your long commute to work, and you say to yourself, why am I going to work? Well, yes, I hope to earn some money, but I'm going to serve the Lord Christ today. That's the reason I exist, is because what? Everything I do is before his face. So Paul gives this example in this text to try to talk about the worldwide dimensions of the gospel. He says we need to apply the gospel to the place where you work. He said, oh, the gospel's not allowed in our place of work. But the implications of the realities of the gospel cannot be prohibited by your work world, your employer. Watch what he says here. The gospel that proclaims freedom to those who at one time were in bondage also elevates us with the privilege of realizing now we are serving the Lord Christ in the workplace. That's a huge statement to someone who was considered a slave. Now, slaves are not the kind of slaves we had in here uh, in this uh, country. It is a kind of slave in which it was like an employment system, in a sense. And people chose to stay in that system because it would work for them. It was good for them. It was almost like a beneficial arrangement on both sides. Not always. But I would notice here that both employers, I would say masters, and employees, that is servants, they share in common the same Lord in heaven. And through the power of the gospel, employees can be set free from a real problem that tends to characterize people in the workplace. Verse 22, chapter 3. There's that problem of men-pleasing. Men-pleasing. Or external service. People who are just trying to, what? Look like they're busy being productive employees when the boss man shows up. Or the boss lady shows up. Right? Right? So that people who have a bad work ethic, 
who pretty much are not doing what they're supposed to be doing, all of a sudden look very busy and occupied with the responsibilities of their duties at their job. When? What? When the boss comes through. You've seen it, haven't you? Of course we all have. Now what's the point here? The gospel says what? I'm not going to create the false impression that I'm a hardworking person that only works when I'm being watched. But I'm serving the Lord Christ. He's watching me all the time. I live before the face of God. Therefore, I'm going to work diligently with what I'm supposed to do. Why? Because the Lord is my boss. And he's blessed me to be able to work and serve him. And the gospel has freed me to be able to say, it's not all just about me. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christian employees are liberated to work, what he says there in verse 22, sincerely, wholeheartedly. And their primary motive to work is not just merely to do the minimum of work required so I don't lose my job, but my motivation is to say, out of respect for God and, and for the fact that what? My life is lived before God and because I'm owned by God and He's blessed me to be able to have one more day of life. I do so for the glory of his name. I want to make much of God. I want to show that God is at work in my life, and therefore my heart is to please him. We work in the context where our diligence and our work ethic is to exceed perhaps our coworkers, who at the same time might find what? They get higher compensation, they do less work, and I'm going to do my job. Why? Because I'm serving Christ. I'm not here to be noticed. I'm here to serve Christ makes a huge difference in our hearts and what motivates us. The gospel assures that Christ will someday, you say, well, that doesn't seem fair. If I'm working twice as hard as I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, these people are lazy, they're, they're really not very faithful in what they're supposed to do. If they get paid more than I do, they get the advancements because they know somebody who knows somebody who got them hooked, whatever. You say, that's not right, that's not fair. Paul speaks to that, verse 24. Someday you'll be rewarded. It's all going to shake out at the end. There is reward in serving Christ. Maybe not in this world, necessarily, but someday. And so then he turns the tide, and verse 25, I believe, speaks also to masters. I think that's really the one he's really talking about there. doesn't say it, but I think he is. He says, listen, those who are Christian employers, those who are Christian masters, they are accountable to God. And they are to treat their employees fairly and justly, knowing that they too have a master in heaven to whom they must give account. And the gospel calls for a new perspective on what you normally would do in your responsibilities in life, a new loyalty that says, draws from our heart a desire to imitate our Father who's in heaven. And not because we have to, but because we enjoy the privilege of being those who have been adopted by God through faith in Jesus Christ. And therefore, what I do is the joy of living out that reality in light of the amazing grace and love and mercy I've received in Jesus Christ. There's much, 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 much more I could say here. But I hope you'll begin to capture a sense in which we as the elders of the church have laying before the Lord a vision that says, oh, how we long to see the gospel being lived out for the glory of God in our homes, in marriages, in our children's relationship with their parents, in our church life here and in our work, everyday life and wherever we're doing in the world, even among unbelievers. May it be true. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you that the richness of the gospel continually amazes us. As we thank you, Lord, it will never be fully exhausted. We'll never ever fully plumb the depths of all the insights and wonderful truths that arise because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Lord, my prayer today is that you would take these truths and principles, and Lord, I pray that you would help to integrate them into wherever we are individually. Some of us, Lord, are beyond the ages of raising children. Some of us are grandparents. Some of us, Lord, have got little children still at our, uh, down in, at, at, the, at our feet. Others of us, Lord, are raising teenagers. Some of us are married. Some of us are not. But Lord, wherever we are, I pray that you would take the, these truths, apply them to our hearts, Lord, that the gospel may be truly confronting us with our sinfulness, confronting us with our tendency to want to do what we want to do, to serve our own idols, rather than serving Christ, and being a blessing and glorifying you, and helping others around us, Lord. I pray that we might find the riches of forgiveness in Christ continually helping us to be honest, be open, be real, to acknowledge our failings, acknowledge our sin, Lord, asking for forgiveness, admitting, Lord, our failings, learning to forbear with other people who are not perfect, being more patient with each other. Lord, we need help in this regard. Oh, how we need the power of the gospel. Lord, none of us can do these things. And so we ask, Lord Jesus Christ, would you take up residence again afresh and anew in us? And Would you help us see the implications of the gospel every day as we preach the gospel to ourselves? Help us, Lord, in our community life here as a church family. Help us, Lord, to let go of things that separate us. Help us to embrace the realities of what we share in common in Christ. To be able to speak to each other and to teach each other and and encourage each other in the things of God, and sharing in our, our wonder at the grace of God, and forgiving each other, helping each other, building each other up in our holy faith. Lord, I pray as we also look at the ramifications of the gospel in our workday life, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see we are serving the Lord Christ. Make that, may that be a, something that transforms how we deal with our everyday challenges at the workplace, Lord. And I pray that people might sense, again, not that we're better than they are, but they might sense, Lord, that there's something about us that's pointing them to you and that they may, we might bring glory to your great name, Lord. That's our heart's desire. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.